Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey folks, welcome back to the Black Duck Revival podcast. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Jen Ballard. Uh, Dr. Ballard is the on-staff veterinarian for the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, and I've had the good pleasure of getting to hang out with her and talk and see her work on several different occasions. I think the first time was a lecture I attended that she gave about CWD here in Arkansas. And then just a few weeks ago, my wife, Marianne, and I were uh, lucky enough to get to accompany her and some other biologists and scientists on a black bear den research study. And I got to kind of see her in action and observe her, you know, quote unquote, a bedside manner there while she was monitoring uh, the uh, sow black bear while we all got to take a look at the uh, the bear cub there and uh you know, all of his vitals and information was gathered while we were doing that. She's a super intelligent and a really thoughtful uh, person. And I'm excited to have her on the podcast this week because, you know, uh, even though most of the time we're talking about hunting and kind of outdoor pursuits on this podcast, this this is really designed to be an examination of craft. And I've said that before. Uh, it's actually in like the little title introduction of this podcast. But... Uh, what I like about this, uh, hour or so of conversation is that it really kind of delves into the craft and the way of thinking of a, uh, scientific professional. And it's different than the way that I look at things. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really much more of a kind of a humanities guy. Uh, I work a lot on feeling and emotion and all that kind of stuff. And here, uh, we get to talk to somebody in depth who looks at the world a little bit differently, who really is interested in sorting out and sorting through these these puzzles and uh, kind of examining uh, their work and their craft with a diagnostic uh, sense and style. So uh, I had such a good time talking to Dr. Ballard. She's a super nice person. Again, very knowledgeable. Uh, we talk about uh, diseases and the health of wildlife across a spectrum of different species. And, you know, I was really just struck by how lucky we are here in the state of Arkansas to uh, have somebody on staff helping to manage the wildlife populations that is as uh, thorough and knowledgeable as Dr. Ballard is. So, uh, like I said, we're going to talk about fish. We're going to talk about uh, birds, uh, large carnivores, ungulates, kind of run the gamut here. We'll talk about uh, just how these scientific principles go into managing wildlife. So if you have any sort of interest in wildlife management, in hunting and fishing, or just how uh, those species are managed and how they're looked at from a, uh, a different point of view from someone who's not only a hunter, but also a scientist. This is a fantastic conversation. Uh, so I hope you stay tuned and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Jim Ballard. Mm-hmm. 
Hey folks, welcome back to the podcast. This week I am joined by Dr. Jen Ballard. I'm here uh, at the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission headquarters in Little Rock, Arkansas. Dr. Ballard is a veterinarian on staff here at the Game and Fish Commission. As we were just discussing, uh, the first one they've ever had, right? Yes, yeah, I've been here about five years. So we were kind of talking a little bit, uh, just like pre-gaming a little bit. Man, I got this. Oh, I forgot, I wore overalls, so now my, these mic wires are gonna drag the whole time off to try and be mindful of that. Uh, but yeah, so that's, I think that's probably, uh, it's probably worth just kind of starting uh, like at the beginning with you and kind of how you came into this discipline because like as we were talking about before we started, um, you know, a veterinarian maybe isn't something that folks think of uh, firsthand or, you know, at first blush when they're thinking about like a, a wildlife management agency, which the Game and Fish Commission is here. But uh, yeah, so... Like just what's your educational background and then maybe a little bit how did you get into this position and then we'll get into the nuts and bolts of it. So I, I'm born and raised here in Arkansas and I, I went to college initially thinking that I wanted to be a zoo veterinarian. And the freshman advisor, when I got into undergrad, they were, they kind of, I think they wanted to give me a backup plan because vet school can be sort of a long shot for anybody. And, but they didn't want to be discouraging. So instead of saying, yeah, you're probably not going to get into vet school, they just said, well, we'll, we'll put you in the pre-vet classes, but I think you'd also really like fish and wildlife. So let's put you in this orientation class. And Wait, they, real quick. Do you mean sorry. it's a long shot because it's just so competitive and hard to get into the schools? Yeah. So there's only, at that time, there was only, I think, 28 accredited vet schools in the country, and they only take about 100 students apiece. So there's not many just mathematically there's not many people accepted to veterinary school in the u.s every year so it's a long shot for anybody it's actually statistically much harder to get into veterinary school than it is medical school so um they didn't want to be discouraging but they clearly i think were trying to give me a backup plan but when i got into these fish and wildlife classes I just fell in love with wildlife management. I was like, what, wait, this is a thing. This is like a career that people do. And I actually changed my major from pre-veterinary to wildlife management. I'm like, like I'm all in, this is it. I'm a wildlifer. And I got to the end of undergrad and I was just like, but I still want to be a vet. I kind of self-identified, I think as a veterinarian. So I started asking around, like, can you be both? Can you be a wildlife biologist and a veterinarian? Can you make a career out of that? And I had a professor just straight up was like, no, nobody really does that. But I was really stubborn and I decided I was going to try to do it anyway. So I actually had to go back to school, take some chemistry classes uh, and apply to veterinary school. Got in, went up to the University of Missouri at Columbia, did just a very traditional uh, DVM program, you know, livestock, dogs and cats, a, a little bit of wildlife rehab and a little bit of zoo work, but not really applied to free ranging wildlife. So when I got done with that degree, I went on to uh, the University of Georgia right after that and did a PhD where I actually kind of pulled the two together. I, I was still taking wildlife management classes and I was taking veterinary pathology and epidemiology and tying the two together so that I could apply veterinary medicine to free ranging wildlife. So uh, it's, it's a growing specialty. It's, it's not exactly new. There's been veterinarians 
doing this, especially in the Western U.S. for decades. Um, but in terms of agencies in the eastern half of the country hiring, there's there's been a lot of growth in that area probably in the last 10 to 15 years. But it, it's not new, but it is newly, I guess, recognized. And I think it's becoming more mainstream as a specialty. Is there a... Is there a reason that it was more prominent in the western half of the country as opposed to the eastern? Well, unfortunately, chronic wasting disease really does drive a lot of um, a lot of the hiring for new veterinarians and wildlife. But I think even more than that, they do a lot more chemical immobilization in western states, so uh, using drugs to um, put animals, you know, under anesthesia and relocate them or move them. And so I, I'm not sure what drove all those factors back then, but, um, uh, there just seemed to be veterinarians working in that field in the West, uh, many decades before it came to the East. Now in the Eastern U S in the Southeast in particular, it's interesting there in 1957, they founded a lab at the university of Georgia and that lab sort of served the wildlife health needs of the Southeastern region for many years. So those states didn't necessarily feel like they needed to hire their own vets for a while because they had this lab kind of serving the region. Okay. And when you're talking about chemical immobilization and moving animals around, is that, is that like trying to move bighorn sheep, like a population from one spot to another and, and trying to deal with kind of maybe animals that are moving around on a grander scale? Is that what you're talking about or, or, I know sheep are a big part of that, but I, I don't know the full extent. I mean, there's there's a lot of work that goes on out there. Um, you know, elk, bison, uh, bighorn sheep, um, um, large carnivores. I mean, there's there's a lot of different work that ha happens and that chemical mobilization is used for everything from placing tracking collars and doing research, collecting samples, moving populations. Uh, it, it, you know, it can be done for a variety of reasons. Okay. Uh, you know, I was thinking about when I was driving over here. Uh, so, you know, I've got these two little girls and the other day we were sitting at the, we were sitting at the table and we were eating, uh, like fried turkey nuggets, right? Like from a turkey I killed in Oregon. And my oldest daughter is telling me how she's, uh, she's got the, she's got it all figured out. Her and my youngest daughter are going to get married. They're going to have kids and then they're going to be veterinarians. Okay. Right? Uh, and so, you know, some of that probably isn't going to work out like the marrying each other thing, I would, <laughs> I would imagine. But the veterinarian thing I think is interesting because, uh, that's something I remember when I was a kid, like that's something that, that kids say they want to do, right? Like mm -hmm. they want to be a veterinarian. They want to be a firefighter. They want to be, uh, a doctor, whatever. Uh, what is, and it sounds like you kind of went into school with an idea that you wanted to do this. So like, what, what is it about that field you think that kind of holds sway over people's imagination or at least what did it for you? I, I'm not sure. I, I came home the first time when I was four years old and told my mom I was going to be a vet. And that was after a veterinarian had visited our preschool and brought some little animals. And I kind of thought about other careers, but I always ended up gravitating back to veterinary medicine. And I volunteered at a zoo in high school. And I think that's what like locked it in for me because I followed their vet around and I thought that was just the coolest job ever. So when I went to undergrad initially, I thought maybe I'd be a zoo vet, but I think 
I think a lot of people really like animals and really like the idea of taking care of animals. And so I think they just see it as a very a very gratifying job maybe um a lot of polls have historically shown that veterinarians are really trusted members of their communities and so they maybe see it as a very respectable profession yeah i guess you're probably right there is a that that would make sense because it does seem like there's probably a you know a perception that there's some altruism involved in it right like you're you're like helping the voiceless like literally right Mm -hmm. uh you know, I wonder too if for you, if there's a, uh, if there's any sort of attraction to the idea that you kind of have to be good at a broad range of things, right? So, like, if you're the vet for the Game and Fish Commission, right, that means you're dealing with every species the Game and Fish Commissions deal with uh, or deals with. Like, when I came in here, you're talking about you're working on a, a program tagging Alabama shad. A few weeks ago, I got to watch you uh, chemically immobilize uh, a black bear and monitor her health and take blood, and you were taking follicle samples and the like. So, I mean, I'd imagine that the fact that you're getting to constantly work with different species and put yourself in new environments is something that's attractive about it as well. Yeah, especially in this sort of specialty, but, you know, even in a clinic setting, you can see a lot of different species. There's certainly a lot of comparative training, um, learning how to read. I mean, the blood work is different for every species and reading x-rays is different for every species. And what's normal parameters for everything from temperature to heart rate, you know, is different for every species. So if you're an MD, you work on one species and a veterinarian's licensed to do all of that medicine in literally every other species on the planet. So I, I do think that diversity um, can be part of the appeal for especially people who want to do things like wildlife or zoo work or even just want to see exotic species in clinical practice. Like I, I think seeing all those different animals has a lot of appeal. Is, is most of your work going to be like in a diagnostic sense or are you involved in uh, like performing surgery and exploratory stuff like that? Uh, Mostly I work on, on populations. And so I'm collaborating with our biologists to try to make sure that when we're managing for our wildlife populations, we're doing it in a way that manages for the health of the population and the animals and not just, you know, numbers. I kind of sometimes sum it up as quality over quantity, but I do occasionally get in there and get my hands dirty, especially the, the bear den work. You know, I spend most of March out handling those individual animals. I've, the only surgeries I've done since I've been here, I've actually been on fish doing transmitter implants, but you know, in other projects I've put transmitters in snakes. And, um, so the surgical needs are pretty minimal in this particular specialty, but, um, yeah, anything can come up at any given time. Uh, and you said, I guess when you were doing, uh, when you were doing schooling that you were kind of specializing in duck diseases or you, well, first you were telling me that you, you know, or, so we're speaking about the fact that there's kind of a lack of a specialization, but if you did have some sort of direction, it'd be focused on disease research and that like here, you know, that might, uh, be trending towards CWD, but that initially it started with like avian diseases and specifically duck populations. Yeah. So when I got to the lab, I didn't have a project when I accepted my position, uh, for my PhD. I just knew I wanted to work in that lab and we'd sort out the research later. 
And then funding came along to investigate a virus that was emerging in sea ducks. So I actually worked in common eiders. And I literally, I'm not even kidding, I had to go, like, go look up what a common eider was. I'm from Arkansas. I'm from a landlocked state. You know, you tell me duck, I'm thinking, you know, dabbling ducks, what I've seen my whole life. And so they start co- talking about these sea ducks. And it's a, it's a whole different world. You know, I thought I knew ducks and, and then I have to go look this thing up, but it was so cool because I, I, you know, there were these recurring mortality events on Cape Cod and that's the southernmost range. So we're trying to investigate what this virus is doing at Cape Cod and why it only seems to be happening at Cape Cod. But that gave me the chance, you know, I went up to Nova Scotia and I felt uh, spent time with the field crews up there that banned ducks and they banned them and I pull a blood sample and we let them go. Um, we had people sending us samples from way up in Northern Canada near the Arctic. And one of my colleagues went to Quebec. He spoke French. I didn't. So he went with the Quebec banding crew, but, um, you know, we're getting samples from all over the world to find out where the antibodies are and why the mortality is only happening in one place when this, this species has this huge range. And, um, I, I learned a lot about virus evolution and, um, and disease emergence, but once you learn it for one species or one disease, you can extrapolate those concepts, you know, to other things pretty easily. Uh, did you guys ever figure out any answers to the question? A few, but like most research, it produced more questions. Um, the there was a really high prevalence there in Cape Cod. The prev, the sero prevalence what didn't continue very strongly up through the rest of the range. So it really did appear that whatever was happening, this exposure, it was very isolated to the Cape Cod area. So, you know, the next step would be to investigate, like, what is that source? It's fairly isolated according, you know, to what we saw. So, uh, but, but then we moved on and I don't think anyone's picked up those research questions, but it was, it was very interesting, but it also by showing that it was so focused in that one area, we could kind of breathe a sigh of relief that that's probably not going to cause population level declines in that species because it's very isolated. And that's the first question we have to answer when we approach a wildlife disease, you know, is it, or is it not going to cause a population level problem? Cause some level of disease is always going to be normal, but then some diseases go beyond that to really pose a threat to the population. And that's when we tend to step in and want to do something management wise to protect those populations, but not every disease needs to be managed. Uh, I've just thought of this when, when you were talking about the, the disease research on, on the ducks, on the eiders rather. Uh, how have you interpreted COVID? COVID has been a really fascinating thing because this is literally something I've learned about and heard about for years, like throughout my training, the, the possibility of a global pandemic, the emergence of disease, over half the diseases um, that are emerging, new diseases that are emerging come from animals. Um, and globally, when you look at the emergence of these new diseases, habitat loss, uh, bringing species into contact either with other animals or with people in a way they've never had in the past is one of the driving factors for a lot of disease emergence. And this has happened over and over and over, but a lot of people just really didn't realized that it was a risk because it never, it never became a global issue. You know, they managed to control it at l- more local or regional levels 
so most of the world was oblivious. But we're in such a interconnected world now. I mean, we are literally one airplane ride away from a global pandemic at any given time, you know? So other viruses that emerge, all Nipah, Ebola, Hindra virus. I mean, there's, there's tons of other viruses that have had these localized outbreaks that could have gone global and thankfully didn't. You know, it, it was always just a matter of time. So I guess I was surprised at how surprised everyone was because if you, if you really knew the landscape, it, it was only a matter of time. <sighs> yeah, that's, oh, that's freaky. You know, I heard someone not to go too far down the COVID rabbit hole, but uh, I heard I was listening to some podcasts and they were, you know, just talking about the exact same thing that you were just speaking to. Uh, and they were saying that, you know, in some ways we were, you know, not to diminish any of the terrible loss of life and the just upheaval in society that's been going on the last couple of years because of this. But you know, like statistically, most people are recovering from it. They said, you know, it it's just kind of like chance that that's how this disease presented itself. Let's say like it could have presented itself like Ebola, you know, which would have been, you know, untold horrors yes. if that was everywhere, right? Yes, because some of these viruses that have emerged in other places that have thankfully been controlled have had much worse clinical disease and much higher mortality rates. I mean, it as bad as it was, and it was truly awful, it, it really could have been much worse. Yeah, man, that's a, <clears throat> that's some scary stuff. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> anyway, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, well, so in Arkansas, let's just talk about here in our local population. Uh, you know, so uh, the Black Bear Bonanza that mm -hmm. BHA put on, they were it's talking about. Much fun. It, Lots of fun. That was a lot of fun. Um, and a really good turnout. I was... Honestly, I think everybody was, uh, I mean, we were all kind of cautiously optimistic about it, but it was a way better turnout than I think anybody, uh, anybody had anticipated. My son loved getting up and doing the hoot owl contest, but he is absolutely dying to show someone his elk bugle. So we, we have to figure out how to do that sometime. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. I mean, I guess probably at the uh, Elk Festival, Maybe right? at the Elk Festival, yeah. Uh, He's six for the record, so. But it's the cutest thing you've ever seen. Is it a pretty good one? It actually is. For a six-year-old, it is impressive. Yeah, man. I, don't, I can't remember if there is a competition for that at the Elk Festival. Uh, man, I had to stop going to the Elk Festival. One time I went there and I drew third alternate for a tag, which meant, meant that three people had to give up their tags for me to get one. Oh, no. Which is like a, you know, that's like a heartbreaker because you're so close. Uh, but so far away, so far away. Yeah. And they were like, we got to, we got to the second alternate one year, but never to the third alternate. Uh, we're trying to get Mike Chamberlain for the, uh, to come down for the Elk festival and talk about some of our research this year. So fingers crossed, maybe that'll happen. Yeah, man. That's, you know, honestly, my only complaint about it is it's so hot because it's like in the middle of the summer in Arkansas and, oh man, it's just so hot. And I don't know. I feel like as I've gotten older, I've got less tolerance to uh, stand outside on the asphalt in the middle of the summertime. If I can keep moving and I'm like in the woods, I can put up with it. But that asphalt and me aren't getting along. Anyway, uh, but we're talking about local population. So the Black Bear Bonanza talking about uh, this mange pot or this uh, mange that's starting to pop up with the uh, black bears. I know we've got CWD now that we're trying to manage. Uh, and so it's probably worth talking about both of those diseases, but are there, 
those are really the only ones that I'm aware of uh, in Arkansas. Is there anything else that you guys are really looking at? So there's a there's a few things. Um, I mean, white nose syndrome is certainly a, a huge issue from okay, a conservation yeah, sure. perspective. Now our bat biologist handles a lot of that um, and, and does a great job. But uh, you know, from just being aware of disease and conservation, white nose syndrome is always an important one. Uh, there's other things we sh- we want to look at in the future. You know, there's a lot of questions about. We know our turkey populations are in decline. What role may disease be playing in that? Um, you know, disease is a major driver of global amphibian decline. And we we really have very few baselines. We, As I said, I've only been here about five years, so we're still developing the program. But those are some other things we want to look at. And then we're constantly monitoring for the introduction of new diseases. At this time, you know, there's a, a massive avian influenza outbreak going on in migratory birds in other parts of the country. Hasn't been detected here, but we're just constantly on standby for sick bird calls uh, right now. And then for the last couple of years, we've been on standby for watching for a disease to be introduced called rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus that's um, semi-recently been introduced. It's become endemic now in the West and it affects both uh, domestic rabbits and wild rabbit populations. And so that's one we really, we don't want introduced into our state. So we're trying to be kind of ready for a rapid response that if it were introduced, hopefully we could prevent it from really spreading. But it, it would be a challenge because it lasts in the environment for a while. So if it's introduced, it's it's hard to contain. And is that... So, like, sometimes I guess you could contain a disease through, like, the dissemination of, like, medication. But I would imagine sometimes, too, it means that you, you've got to take animals out of the population, right? Sometimes. It depends on the, the situation. So, rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus, it's not in the adjacent state's wild rabbit population so right now. So if it was going to be introduced, it'd most likely be introduced in a domestic rabbit, but it could be in their, you know, their hay, their, the waste from their cages and, you know, and things like that. So if, if one of those rabbits was identified with it, we'd go in and try to contain the environment and then monitor to see if it had spilled over into the wild population. So sometimes it's, it's controlling things like that at that interface. And what is, what is that disease doing? I mean, it, I mean, the description of it, I imagine there's some sort of like hemorrhaging of blood, but so exactly what's happening with that? Uh, Well, I mean, usually it's just rapid mortality. It's very contagious. Um, Sometimes you see, you know, neurologic signs. So they behave funny or have trouble breathing or have blood coming out of their nose, but often they're just, they're just dead and it has a very high mortality rate. So that's the issue. They're very nervous in the West because they have intricate ecology for some of their species where they'll have like a predator that's just solely dependent on rabbits for their food and they don't really hunt other species. So when the rabbits decline, the, the, um, predators populations decline and there, there's some really tightly linked relationships in the West that they're very concerned about. So that would be like, and I guess this wouldn't be Westerly, I guess it'd be Northerly, but like you always hear about like, uh, lynx and snowshoe hares. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, so when there's lots of snowshoe hares, there's lots of lynx being born. And then when isn't it like, it's like a six year cycle or something, I think. Yeah. I can't remember how long the cycle is, but yeah, that it's, they follow each other. There's yeah. a, there's a lag. So, uh, they're worried about this new disease being introduced into that. And is that like a cross? So would that be like 
cottontails and swamp rabbits and uh, jackrabbits and hares and all that stuff? Yeah, see, that's that's kind of the problem with this new strain. B- before, it really only affected European rabbits and domestic rabbits, and it was very isolated to that genus of lagomorphs. And this new strain that has emerged now seems to cover a a much wider range of lagomorphs. So all of those species have been documented and we don't even know what other species because there's, there's actually a lot more like rabbits and pika species out there than than you think about. I, I didn't have any idea till I looked it up, but there's globally, there's a whole bunch of those species and we don't know which ones are susceptible to this new strain. And so that genus is called lagomorph? So it's, so the genus is smaller, but... Um, yeah, the bigger taxon group that includes all the, the rabbits and pikas is called lagomorphs. Okay, yeah, that was me trying to sound like I knew more than I did. <laughs> so it's <clears throat> what's so yeah, what is actually that, that scale of breakdown that genus is part of? There's like a taxonomical uh, description and then that gets broken down. Yeah, so like kingdom, phylum, class, uh, order, and it, it keeps going down. Okay. And then pika, those are like those little super cute, like little pokemon looking critters that live up in the rocks <laughs> yeah, right yeah yeah uh and but so that that disease can affect all of those well we don't know yet um it affects more of them than the previous strains but we don't know how far out that goes okay uh and then so like in uh arkansas here what's going on with uh mange i mean which i guess a lot of people would be familiar with mange from i mean i don't know that i've ever even seen like a mangy dog but i associate it kind of with coyotes Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, uh, is it a, is it a bug? Is it a disease? What's causing it? Yeah. So it, it's a mite that gets in their skin and then, um, that causes a lot of irritation and, uh, hair loss. And as the skin responds and as they scratch and everything, it can, it can allow setting in of, of bacteria, secondary bacterial infections and, and fungal infections. And it just creates this terrible skin infection, but it, yeah, it all starts with a mite. That's, um, it's pretty nasty. It does affect a wide range of species. There's several different actually species of mange mite, but what we're seeing in our bears is called sarcoptic mange. So, um, sarcoptes scabii is this species and it affects a lot of different, uh, domestic animals, wildlife. It, coyotes foxes but only in the last four years have we started seeing these cases in black bears in our state uh and so we know that the mite has been here for a long time we know that the bears have always been here we don't see any changes in their ecosystem but something has to have changed because when you have the the host and the pathogen in the environment you have to get the right overlap that allows a clinical problem to emerge and so when you've all when those things have all haven't noticeably changed you have to kind of go looking for the change because you know that if this disease is emerging in a significant way something has to have changed in the environment so uh, that's kind of where we're going now is to look at this research so for example um, they may be exposed to toxins that could be lowering their immune system and allowing this mite that they would have historically been exposed to, but not getting sick. Now they're getting sick. So is something stressing them or immunocompromising them? Has the mite changed? Um, are, has, you know, is the bare immune response changed through their genetics or, or something else? So viral exposures, there's a lot of things that could set them up for that. But since we know the pathogen and 
the host have always been here without a problem. And now we have a problem. We have to go figure out what has changed to allow that to occur. And you guys are just kind of starting to do that uh, investigation. Yeah, we're, we're really just getting started with that. So we had some hunters help us last year. We're collecting um, liver samples from both affected and unaffected bears. We're going to test those for different toxin exposures to see if uh, we can pick up on any patterns there. You saw me pull the blood on the bear when we mm -hmm. were doing that den work. We'll check the serum for different exposures. We've been collecting... Um, tissue samples or skin samples from all the affected bears to look at the mites themselves. Um, so yeah, we're, we're just collecting all those samples right now, trying to get, um, the research together to, to start. It's almost a fishing expedition at first because we don't, we don't even know what has changed or what exactly we're looking for, but it's just clear that something has changed, but there's a few hints like out in the West, we know that, um, predators like bobcats that are exposed to, uh, rat poisons, not enough, not a high enough dose to kill them, uh, but a lower dose, they're immunosuppressed and they're breaking with severe mange out there. So that's one of the things we want to look at. Maybe it's something similar to that, like rodenticides, maybe it's heavy metals or insecticides. So we've got to kind of look at a range of things. And is that a, is that a fatal disease? It can be. That's one of the other things we're looking at, uh, trying to monitor these populations because, uh, we don't know the percentage of bears that may be able to resolve and get over it on their own versus the number that die. But we do come across some bears that are severely affected. They kind of have almost no hair left at all. And they'll get really emaciated from the secondary infections and just trying to fight off this whole thing. Um, and, and eventually they just don't make it. So it, it can be fatal, but we don't actually know the percent of that, uh, those cases that end up being fatal. If, if game and fish gets, starts getting calls about, uh, a bear that like obviously has mange in an area, what's the, what's the procedure around that? Well, it depends on how severely affected the bear is. If the bear is very severely affected, it's, um, you know, sometimes we get calls and they're just standing in people's yards and they're just too weak to go anywhere. We'll actually go put those bears down, you know, for, um, welfare reasons. I mean, there's, there's just not much you can do at that point. So we'll use those as an opportunity to collect the samples to work toward this research that I've described. If they're less severely affected, you know, they've maybe got a little bit of hair loss, but they're not sick. They're behaving normally. Uh, we'll tell folks to leave them alone, but to keep an eye on them. And if they see them again, or, or if our staff can see them again in those areas, we'll continue to monitor to see if they're getting worse and becoming a welfare issue or if they're improving. So, uh, it depends on the, how the animal presents. We kind of take it case by case. Okay. Is, is your, is either your philosophy or the game of fishes philosophy? Is it, are you trying to avoid intervention with animal populations until it's needed and just kind of, you know, allow them to, to exist naturally. Or are you trying to like actively in like an interventionist sort of way, like manage the populations? Well, I think it's, it, that would depend on the species and the situation. I mean, in many cases, we're already managing the populations in terms of how we harvest them and keep their, uh, keep them in balance and how big the overall population is allowed to get. Um, so we want to make sure that when we are actively managing them, we're taking health into account and into consideration, 
but we don't want to step in and manage specifically for diseases if it's not necessary. So I, I would say from that perspective, we try to be hands off until it's clear that the disease itself is a threat to the long-term stability of the resource. You know, and then at the end of the day, we, we are the trust agency responsible under the North American model for the long-term viability of these populations. So if a disease threatens the long-term viability of a population, then, you know, it's necessary. We, we feel that it's our responsibility to try to manage that, to, to protect the resource. Okay. Yeah. So you're not going out there and like in a preventative way, you know, giving, trying to give all the white tailed deer dewormers or something. No, no. You know, I mean, that's, that, that's a great example because we get asked that all the time. You know, these are wild animals. They're not livestock. And so we don't go out and treat them like livestock, you know, wildlife always have parasites. That That's a perfect example. And to an extent, that's a normal part of their ecology. But as we've changed their habitats, we can also impair their ability to respond to diseases. And we're constantly introducing new diseases to them. So w w the first thing we have to do is step back and ask what's normal and what is being influenced by humans, either introduced by humans or we've impaired their ability to respond to it. And, and then it may start to really produce a threat to the long-term population. Okay. Uh, here in a minute, we'll probably go down uh, the cervid conversation, but uh, I've just, you know, part of the beauty of this podcast is I can just ask whatever I want whenever I want to. And so I was just thinking here, is there is there like a, uh, a species that you have a particular affinity for? I'm not saying necessarily like your favorite animal, but is there is there a species that you you just really enjoy working with or you feel like you're able to make the biggest difference with? I think I think bears are probably the thing I enjoy working with the most. Um they're beautiful, they're smart, they're elusive. Um only I say elusive because you don't see them very often. I don't see them very often unless there's a collar on it and I know where to go look. So, you know, I just, I love bears. I've always loved working with carnivores. Even back when I worked at the zoo, I, I loved working with carnivores. So I think bears are probably my absolute favorite. Um, but if I had to go to birds, I love pintail ducks too. Like they're just beautiful. They're one of my favorites. People love pintails. Yeah. Uh, and I get it. I get it with pintails. They're, you know, I have I have my own favorite with waterfowl. But uh, yeah, I was kind of figuring you would say black bears, especially because you get to you get to put your hands on so many of them, right? Like we we're talking about it a few weeks ago, like around fifty a year, right? That you you guys have. Would you say you have collars on like fifty three of them or something? Yeah, statewide. But uh, I mean, I don't personally lay hands on all of those a year. I mean, I probably touched a dozen bears this year, but we have a lot of crews and we break up and, and tag team things. But, um, yeah, I, d I do get uh, way more hands on time than most people. And yeah, it's the thing I always wanted out of a career was it to be an adventure. And that that's the biggest adventure in my years is to go work with these bears. So yeah, that's, there's a lot of job satisfaction in that project. Yeah, I saw some like on your Instagram, and then you were talking about it that day. You were talking about it, and then uh, maybe the next day or something, you posted a picture. So that uh, 
so me and my wife Marianne, we got to go on uh, like tag along one of these den uh, research uh, situations, right? Where they go and they kind of like tranquilize the the mama bear, and then they count the cubs, and you get to take some cool pictures, and they get a bunch of scientific information uh, about the about the sow. Um, and so this particular one, this den was. I mean, it's not what you would think of when you think of a bear den, right? It was just really like a depression right in front of a blowdown. Uh, but, you know, we were kind of discussing, like, the, the range of dens. Like, I've, I've actually found one bear den before, uh, and it was, it was a little more of what you'd think. Like, kind of, I, th I think it started as a blowdown. It was like a blowdown hole in the side of, a, uh, you know, one of our Wachita mountains, uh, in quotes. But it, it definitely went in further than that. I mean, this was just like a depression. Um, but you were talking about that, especially uh, in the more flood-prone regions, that these bears will den up in a tree. Or that really cool picture I saw was like, you know, it was basically like a, this bear is just behaving like a big coon, right? Like it went up and went down into the middle of a hollow tree that was still standing. And then it was snowing. And then you were down inside this tree trunk with yes. this tranquilized bear. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's got to be, I mean, yeah, adventure seems like the best word for it, man. I mean, that's that's like a, a life experience that there's probably a very small, you know, uh, collection of people that have had something like that. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, you're busy and you're monitoring the animal and, but every once in a while you just, it's like sit back and look at this and I'm like, man, they, they pay me to do this. This is, this is incredible. This is a dream come true. And, you know, I, I hear the other staff, you know, kind of say the same thing. Like there's just these surreal moments that it's like, you know, this, this is why I got into this field and yeah, it's great. How do you, uh, when you are tranquilizing those bears, are you, are you I guess I wasn't quite clear on it. Uh, when I was out there, are you guys doing that with like a, a pole like getting like 20 feet away and sticking it or are you shooting it with a some sort of like projectile or how does that work? Yeah, it, it is a projectile. So there's a couple different options. You can use a jab stick and sometimes if they're real docile, that's that's okay. Or if they're in a trap, that's a, that's a good way to go. For those, um, you're close range, but not usually close enough for the jab stick. So the guys typically carry pistols, air powered darting pistols, uh, which are good for short range. And then they make air powered rifles for, um, longer range darting, but we rarely need those. I mean, we, we have them if we need them, but, uh, the pistol is, is the good, the best implement for that one. So the guys usually get, I, I, I prescribe the drug, you know, we work out the dose. They have a very detailed plan of, of how to do it. And then they usually do the darting with the, with this pistol. How, uh, my, my friend, uh, Brad was asking me about this especially with the way that specific bear that I got to tag along on like the way it was and it had that super cute little cub with it. Uh, if, if, you know, if we didn't know that bear was there, if we were just walking around the woods, right. Picking up uh, pine cones with the kids, would she just stay hunkered down or would she like get up and run away if we got in close proximity to her or how do they behave? most will just hunker down and a lot of people probably walk by bear dens and never even know that they're there. Um, 
some get skittish and they'll get up and move. Uh, it kind of depends on how awake they are and how long you stay in the area and, and just the personality of the bear. We have a few, the guys kind of call them runners. And um, so we have a few bears that are a little bit more skittish, but the vast majority just kind of hunker down because that, that cub can't keep up. Like that's her motivating factor to stay in that den until those cubs can keep up with her and act like bears. And especially until they're strong enough to, to climb trees. Cause that's, their going to be their main defense. Um, until they're, you know, older is just to get up and away. So, uh, she'll stay there with that cub and try to keep, keep anybody away from it as long as she can usually. Okay. Uh, yeah, man, that was so neat. I've thought about it so many times since then. Uh, and yeah, like you, like I said to you, you know, everybody was kind of like hovering around the cub and I kind of, the first thing I did was like come up to you and I wanted to see that, see that sow. Cause like I told you, you know, like I've only ever seen, that's only the second bear I've ever, ever been close up on, you know, and the first one was a hunting situation and, uh, and as cool and as, uh, validating as that is uh you know there's there's something to just being able to be around an animal and uh not being you know not not be a predator in the situation right yeah. uh that was like one of the things i noticed when i first started getting into hunting so like my first in, introduction was these uh it's not really a thing anymore, but it used to be this deal like every year, I don't know, probably like July or August, uh, you'd like go to Walmart and there'd be like the real tree and the, like the mossy oak, uh, like the deer hunting compilation DVDs. Right. So like I'd watch those, but then I started getting to where I, I wanted to just watch like, uh, you know, I became fascinated with whitetails. So I just wanted to watch like nature documentaries and there wasn't like a ton of it or like all the attention had been spent on hunting the animals and there just wasn't like a lot of David Attenborough type stuff about whitetail. So I feel like I consumed pretty much everything that there was, but, uh, yeah, that's kind of just like an aside that it's, you know, we talked about the fact that you, you hunt, uh, and probably for a lot of people that hunt, it, it's such a strange dichotomy because, I think if you're doing it in the way that I would hope most people are doing it, and I think that you know the majority of folks are doing it, you spend so much time thinking about like an animal and trying to figure out like why it's doing what it's doing and understanding its motivations is like biological motivations, right? So like what it's eating at certain times of the year, uh, it's reproductive cycles and all this stuff. Uh, but then oftentimes your interaction with them is only, in the sense of like predator and prey. Right. And it's often, it's like very, very brief. Like you might just see them for a matter of seconds until it's then the next time you see it, it's not sentient anymore. Right. It's like, and then that's kind of like this change in it. Uh, sorry, I just went, I just went down the, the romance trail on it, but uh, yeah, it's I just, I can imagine it's gotta be super validating to be able to put your hands on those bears and see different ones and, and, and see that life cycle, see them from so small and tiny and helpless and then see them as, you know, big, you know, mama bears. And, uh, and then, you know, I guess you're, are you, are you dealing with the same bears from year to year at this point? Yes. Uh, now, I mean, 
I only have, I've only worked on the bear project for the last three years. So I'm just now getting to where I would see bears for the second time since they breed every other year. And we mm. really only handle them the years they have cubs. Um, the guys will go out and check how many yearlings are still alive uh, the following year, but we don't have to sedate them to do that. So I don't typically go along. Um, so yeah, I'm getting to that position, but you know, Myron, our, our carnivore coordinator, like him and some of these staff that have been doing this for years, they'll see the same bears year after year after year. And then they'll, they'll remember the day they collared it. And then at some point when she usually stops reproducing, they'll go in and they'll take that collar off and not put a new one on there. And it's, it's almost like a retirement. So, um, yeah, I mean, we, we had a bear that had a really bad response to the anesthesia and we had to reverse her and she gave us all a really bad scare and, and the staff even, you know, they were, they were very invested in this bear. They had, had known this bear for many years and it was, um, it was a hard moment, but it was also kind of a really interesting moment just to remember, like we, we hunt animals, we see animals dead all the time. And yet we still have these bonds with the animals that are very much alive and we're very much invested in keeping them alive. And it is an interesting dichotomy and I, I don't know how to explain it. Um, Except, I mean, lots of us have pets and eat meat. It's not like, it's not like it's completely foreign, but it's not something I think about all the time. But it, it is interesting. What uh, what part of Arkansas are you from? North Little Rock. So okay. Central Arkansas. All right. So you're from right here. Yeah. Um, what, as a hunter, what's your what are you primarily pursuing? Usually whitetail. Um, so I've I've always wanted to kill a turkey. I have yet to kill a turkey. This is this is a life goal, but. Um, uh, but we squirrel hunt a fair bit, um, go duck hunting when we can, but, uh, usually whitetail because I mean, we feed, my husband and I feed our family on game meat a lot throughout the year. So that's, um, you know, that's pretty reliable source for us. Uh, I'll give you a turkey tip. All right. Uh, go someplace that's not Arkansas. <laughs> that's how I started killing Ouch. them. <laughs> I mean, look, that's not a judgment against anything you or the Game of Fish is doing. But, uh, you know, I mean, I just I don't see I just wrote an article for uh, Sitka Gear. And in that I said, you know, like and so I also spend, you know, probably the majority of my time outside in uh, the Arkansas Delta. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is if you look on an NWTF map of turkey populations the arkansas delta is just a white void right like <laughs> yeah. there's not turkeys there right <laughs> uh like the, when i do find turkey sign it's you know it's been when i'm bear hunting like in the wachita's or something um but yeah you want to talk about an elusive creature like they're they're few and far between i'd say like the best turkey hunters i know in arkansas kill a turkey every other year uh as opposed to like you know, I was in Oregon last year. I mean, that place is craw. I mean, just got to my buddy's house. He's like, let's go around the corner and there's 80 in a field. You know, I've seen five. No. Without in Arkansas, Missouri. I was right on the Missouri-Arkansas line and I saw five on the side of the road. And I saw three on the Buffalo River. But you just don't see them that often here. Yeah, I, I often see hens from my deer stand. We, we have a lease in in Calhoun County and in, in South Arkansas. And so I often see hens from my deer stand, but then when it's turkey season, you know, where, where did everything go? Obviously you can't shoot hens, but, yeah. but 
you know, you, you always see the species when you're not looking for it. And then when you start to look for it, you know, where did that go? Um, but yeah, I've, I've got a friend who's a pathologist out in California and, you know, he's, he's a Georgia boy and where everybody loves turkeys and they're very elusive and very valued. Yeah. And then, um, they're almost a nuisance in California because nobody hunts them and they're sitting there like, uh, strutting in front of the building and fighting with a reflection in the glass door, you know, and he's got pictures of them and they're just everywhere and nobody cares. Yeah, no, it, it, it's, it is really weird. Um, cause yeah, like in Oregon, it's a non-native species, right? They're like introduced birds there. So they are to the agricultural sector, man. Like they're, I don't know if vermin's the right word, but like, you know, they grow those, uh, they call them filberts or hazelnuts up there. And they just like wreak havoc on those, those, oh, uh, I bet. those nut farms. And so like, yeah, it's not, a, it's not like, uh, it's, it's just not like here, you know, if someone had had a farm and they had like a decent Turkey population, you're not going to go door knock and get permission for it. Right. But like up there, you know, you got people. I should probably stop talking about this. I don't want everyone going up to Oregon. Uh, <laughs> that's my little secret. Um, well, yeah. So, all right, let's use the, the whitetail hunting segue. Uh, so, like lots of places in the U.S. now, Arkansas has CWD. And I would bet a lot of people that listen to this podcast uh, have some familiarity with that. But uh, there's probably some that don't. So, if we could, let's give like a... Like, you know, it's kind of a basic description of what it is. And then I've, I've got a few pointed questions about it, but, uh, because I watched, you gave a, uh, you gave a lecture on it at, uh, that like archery field day thing yeah. that we did over the summer. And it was, it, honestly, it was kind of like scary. Cause I was like, man, these prion things are like, they're like invincible. But, uh, yeah, so like chronic wasting disease, right? Okay, so it's in a category of diseases called prion diseases. And uh, and so there's prion diseases that affect all different species. So it's not wholly unique, except there are some special characteristics. So mammals have a normal prion protein in their body. When they get these diseases, it's because uh, that protein takes on an unusual conformation. It changes its shape. Because of the changed shape, it can't be broken down by the body, so it accumulates, and the accumulation causes tissue damage, especially in the brain. So the brain cells start dying, and it has this very long, slow process where it builds up. The animal's looking healthy. It's building up, and then all of a sudden, they kind of break with this fatal neurological disease. Uh, it can take, you know, a year, year and a half, sometimes more, kind of depends on the genetics of the animal. Uh, but that's, I mean, that's the gist of it in the individual animal. Now, in the case of CWD, it's one of only two prion diseases that's contagious. So the thing that starts those normal proteins taking on that shape is exposure to the protein itself, to the misshapen protein. It gets in the body and it acts like a template and it makes the body's own proteins start taking on this new shape. And so, uh, there's only, there's only two that are actually contagious that way. Uh, this one and, uh, scrapey and sheep and goats. And so that's kind of what happens in the individual animal. But the reason we care is that when the prevalence of this disease gets high, it can tip the mortality rate in the population 
over to the a point that it can't be compensated for. And so you start getting changes in your population demographics and, and potentially much smaller populations. And what's left are going to be younger animals with a higher prevalence of disease if we don't step in and manage it. So it can drastically you know, damage our, our wildlife resource. And so that's why this is one of the diseases where we do choose to step in and try to manage this disease because we see those long-term population effects coming. And so, you know, like a lot of folks would, they'd associate this with like mad cow disease, right? Like that was back in the nineties or two thousands or something. I remember. Uh, but so there's not evidence that this is, we don't have any examples of it transferring from uh, an animal to a human at this point, right? So mad cow disease did, but there's not been a documented case of that happening for CWD. Um, do we know where, like where it originated from, like where it came from? Not specifically. There's some good theories. Um, with one of those is that it, sort of started spontaneously uh other people think that it was probably started from scrapey and something happened in the prion a new strain formed and it was able to spill over from sheep and goats which are typically affected by scrapey into cervids and now it's very cervid adapted and tends to only affect members of that taxonomic group all right and so cervids uh, I know you know this, but cervids, we're talking about like the deer. So that would be like elk and white tails, mule deer, black tailed deer, uh, moose. moose and reindeer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and this is, this is something that kind of, did it start out West and then it's disseminated out from there? That appears to be the case. Like where exactly in the West it started, um, isn't really known, but it was first documented in a research facility. The first case I think was documented around 1967. Um, those, those animals had been brought in from the wild and they think, um, there were some people that theorized that it was because of that captivity in a, in that facility that it arose, but it's, seems more likely that it was already on the landscape and they just happened to one of the animals they brought into that research facility was um, probably infected. And that's where it was first documented. And they kept documenting cases in this research facility for the next couple of decades. And the first paper describing it was uh, published in 1980. Okay. Um, all right. So, I'm going to ask what might be a difficult question, but it's, I'm sure it's nothing you haven't heard before. Uh, so this is, this is a, this is a fairly con, you know, easily transferable disease, right? Between these animals. Yes. Um, and it's, it's spread through direct contact, right? Well, it can be direct or indirect. So when the animals are infected, even during that time that they don't look sick yet, they're shedding uh, this misshapen protein in their urine, their feces, their saliva. So um, direct contact with that can transmit it to another animal, but it can also get into the environment and be picked up through indirect contact with environment it, contaminated environments. Okay. So, and then, yeah, that's what I was saying. Like it's, and then it stays there for, an insanely long amount of time, right? Yes. So we don't actually know the actual outside limit of how long it can remain in the environment and remain infectious. We know for scrapey, uh, it's been documented to be at least 17 years. So knowing that, you know, a decade is probably a pretty conservative estimate. Two decades is, is really not much of a stretch at all. 
but it's probably not going to be the same across ecosystems because the soil composition is really going to play a role in how quickly it um, degrades or denatures uh, and also how bioavailable it is. So it sticks to some kinds of soils better than others. And so some places it may sort of filter down and become less available to animals because it's not sticking to the soil. And in other places, the soil itself can actually make it much more infectious. Okay. So to the, what might be a difficult question, and that's, that's going to be like because of culturally here in Arkansas, right? And so Arkansas has a culture. It's legal, uh, to uh, provide supplemental feed to deer, right? So what that basically means is when deer season comes in, like there's 50-pound uh, bags of corn being sold in, you know, Walmarts and uh, gas stations, like rural gas stations and just all over the place, right? And a lot of people, that's the primary way that they uh, they kind of gain access to whitetails, right, is they have corn feeders out or rice bran or whatever, uh, and that's kind of how they're getting access to deer. So from what I've heard, or as I understand it, when you have that, when you have a, you have CWD in a population, those deer congregating and like eating, uh, in a close environment like that, right. Where they could be exchanging saliva and, you know, a, a sick animal could be shedding into that environment. And then they're congregating in that. That's like, you know, that could help spread the disease. That's not, that's not great as far as containment. So, uh, like how much of a factor is that in CWD being spread? And, uh, I mean, is there any concern that that practice in Arkansas is, is going to contribute to more animals getting it? Yes, absolutely. So, the way that I describe this, you know, there's there's research that has looked at the way that artificial food sources change wildlife behavior for, for decades. So w there's basically four things that feeding can do that can be a problem when it comes to chronic wasting disease. So um, basically reliable artificial food sources have been shown to break down the social structure of deer. It mixes their family groups and CWD appears to be transmitted within family groups much uh, more frequently than to unrelated individuals, even, you know, within the same population. So if you've got sort of contained disease transmission within family groups, but less often between, and then you put out artificial food sources that mix family groups and break down that structure, then you're going to get more you're still going to have within family group transmission, but now you're also increasing your risk for between family group transmission. So it brings animals into contact with animals that they don't normally come into contact with. You know, deer are social. That's pointed out to me all the time, but they're not necessarily universally equally social. They, they have a, a social structure under normal circumstances and disease or, um, feeding artificial food sources break that down. So it brings animals into contact with animals they don't normally come into contact with. It also brings them into a kind of contact they don't normally have because usually, sure, they'll they'll feed around the same tree, but when one oak tree's making acorns, they're all making acorns. And so there's a normal distribution of animals on the landscape and artificial food sources bring animals into these sort of congregated areas. We know they spend 
longer amounts of time and come into closer contact at artificial food sources than natural ones. So they're coming into contact with animals they don't normally come into contact with. They're coming into a kind of contact they don't normally have, and that can increase disease transmission. If even one infected animal comes and sheds in that area, then that becomes contaminated and you're continuing to intentionally lure other animals into that potentially contaminated environment. And the fourth concern is that if you have sick animals, does that um, feeding them so they don't have to forage and they don't have to move around a lot, does that keep them alive longer on the landscape so they have more opportunities to transmit the disease? So those are, are four big concerns. Now, what we don't know is we don't, the research has never been done to put a number to that. Like this practice increases disease transmission by this number. So we have, a, I would say, a fairly robust sort of qualitative understanding of the problem, but we don't have a quantitative understanding of the problem. And because we can't put a number to it, you know, people say there is no science or that it's not strong enough or we need to wait till we have that number to take action. But really, we, we have a real pretty robust understanding that this could be a problem by a number of different mechanisms. And really only one of those has to be at play for it to be a problem. So, um, we do worry about the increased disease transmission. I mean, this isn't going to create the disease, but if the disease is there, it could increase the rate at which that prevalence starts to rise and, and those population effects occur. So we, we have restrictions on baiting and feeding in the state. So for our agency, we define feeding as putting out food with no intention of harvesting an animal. Um, and that is actually prohibited in our CWD affected counties um, because it's, there's just no gain to it. You know, they don't really, they're wild animals. They don't really need the food and it's going to increase disease transmission and there's no balance there with harvest. We do still allow some baiting and we know that that's a risk, but to be honest, it's it's a cultural um, compromise because we can't manage CWD without harvesting deer. We, we have to manage the population through harvest to help control this disease. And so hunters said exactly what you just said. That's how they hunt. That's how they harvest deer. And we need them to harvest deer. And so we've made this compromise. But the more we can get people... So what what is allowed is the use of bait using food to harvest animals um, just from September, I believe it's September 1st to December 31st. So it's a, it's a limited window inside our CWD zone, only on private land. You, you already couldn't bait on public land anyway, um, that we still allow the use of bait and, and it's a compromise, but the more people that use that sort of less and less, um, is, is probably for the better, you know, given the biology of the disease, if we can get people to voluntarily move more and more towards, you know, habitat improvements and food plots. But, you know, that takes a lot of effort. You have to go out and work on your habitat and, and put in your food plot. And, and we have to get people sort of in that mindset to, to move away from these practices, um, really for the good of the resource. And, and that's kind of the message we're trying to put out is it's just focusing on habitat instead. I mean, and I guess for some good news, like it's, it's still a, it's a relatively small percentage of Arkansas that we think CWD is in, right? Um, so it's been found in, in 19 counties, but it's at a, a very low prevalence in the vast majority of those. We've, we've got above a 5% 
overall prevalence, it appears in about five counties. So we have about five counties that are really affected pretty badly right now. And the rest of the counties that are either not affected as far as we know, or have a much lower case number. Um, and where we have the disease at a lower prevalence right now, we want to go in and, and really work to keep it low and prevent those those adverse effects. So this isn't one of those things where you want to wait till it's bad before you start managing. Because if you actually go in and start managing before um, that environmental reservoir really builds up and there's a lot of environmental contamination, you can be a lot more successful. Sure. Uh, well, okay, so th this might be kind of like my, my closing sort of thought here, but uh, so I'm just trying to think about, we've talked about uh, hemorrhagic disease in rabbits, we've talked about sarcoptic mange, we've talked about chronic wasting disease, we've talked about diseases in uh, sea eaters and Cape Cod, right? We uh, touched on COVID, Ebola, so, like all these terrible <laughs> sounding things, right? But you strike me uh, as an optimistic and happy person. So, uh, you know, when, when you're dealing with like these, uh, these kind of like big, heavy, you know, sort of scary topics, uh, this is really just like a question about you and your personality and, and, and how you view things, but like, how do you maintain a, a sense of optimism and not become like uh, doom and gloom focused? It's tempting some days, um, but I love the science. I love the the science and the puzzle and and the resource. And if I can just move us even an inch at a time in the right direction and leave it just a little bit better than I found it. Um, then it's worth it. And I, I think there are places that we can, we can make progress and we can make a difference and we can leave the resource a little bit better than we found it. And, uh, I just try to focus on that. And, but I do, I love the puzzle of it and, and how we can take the research and interpret it and apply it and make a difference for the resource because that, that's why I'm here every day. And when I go home, I look at my kid who's absolutely eat up with hunting and I want to make sure that what he inherits is a little bit better than it was when, before I started. So that's, that's what keeps me going. You know, it's, it's just love of the resource. Yeah, that's a great answer, man. It's, uh, I'll tell you what I was thinking about when you said that. So I, uh, it's just like a personal note. Like I told you about my daughters talking about wanting to be veterinarians and it's mostly my oldest daughter, Eloise, uh, but when you're talking about like loving the puzzle, man, like that's, she loves puzzles. Like I've never, even when I was a kid, I didn't like doing puzzles when like at school when they would give you those, like, uh, you know, they're supposed to, it was like homework, but it was supposed to be like a fun puzzle or something. I couldn't stand them, <laughs> but she just loves it. She's, she just got that. Uh, I was seriously just sitting here thinking like, dude, maybe she will be a veterinarian, man. Like if that's how she looks at the world and that's like what's bringing her a sense of satisfaction and joy. You but, know, even in a clinic setting though, it, it is a puzzle. Like that's, that's perfect because you're looking at this animal. It can't tell you how it's feeling. So you're 
you're watching its behavior, you're looking at its radiographs, you're looking at its blood work, and you're putting it all together to figure out like what's going on with this animal. I do, I do that for the population, but even in a clinic setting, yeah, I think it's always a puzzle. Dude, well, uh, Dr. Ballard, thank you so much for your time. This is a this has been super informative. Uh, I, man, I think it's a. I'm actually sitting here just thinking about like, man, I actually feel really good about being here in Arkansas and knowing that we've got somebody like you who's looking out for these populations because it's like, it seems like we've got the right person in this spot. Thank you so much. Uh, well, yeah, if folks want to follow some of the work you're doing or, uh, you know, get in touch with you if you want them to, uh, how would they go about doing that? Uh, well, uh, you can always reach out to our wildlife health program at, you know, if you see a sick animal or you have a question about things like that, we have kind of an email hotline for that at agfc.health at agfc.ar.gov. Um, I'm also on uh, Facebook uh, for, for the agency. You can look for the green banner uh, or on Instagram kind of uh, just personally at the AR wildlife vet. So any of those? Cool. Well, like I said, Dr. Ballard, thank you so much. And folks, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey, folks, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast. As always, it's produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and Brian Sachs. If you like this podcast, you can always help out by uh, subscribing there on Apple or Spotify or whatever platform you enjoy listening to the podcast on. Leave a five-star review, and if you have a few extra minutes, a written review helps tremendously as well. Also, please, this is a uh, still kind of a burgeoning podcast, so word of mouth helps big time. So tell somebody that you like, tell somebody that you love. Tell somebody you think might be interested in any of these conversations that we're having with some of these fascinating folks about the podcast and encourage them to listen, subscribe, all that stuff as well. If you want to keep up with me, two best ways of doing that are either by going to the website, which is just blackduckrevival.com, or by following me on Instagram, and that is just blackduckrevival. Here in a couple weeks, I'll be leaving and heading out west to go on my turkey tour where hopefully I get a chance at killing uh, quite a few birds to bring home and put in the freezer, help feed the family, and then I'll even end up doing a little, uh, a little cool jaunt out to Michigan at the end of May uh, with Sitka Gear and the National Wild Turkey Federation. So I'm so looking forward to that. I'll also be at Droth Fest, which is a North American uh, festival about uh, Deutsch Drother dogs, some of those really fantastic, versatile hunting dogs you may have seen. And I'll be doing that at the end of May as well, giving some cooking and processing demonstrations. So if you are in that area, please stop by. I'd love to see you talk, hang out. We'll cook some food, eat some stuff. It'll be a good time. Anyway, please join me next time on the podcast. Until then. Thank you.